theme, like announcements, is part of our worship time, but I just want to make the case that announcements are service opportunities in the church, and we gather on Sunday mornings to encourage each other, to worship the Lord, to study His Word, to give glory to God, to give and to serve each other. But there are so many ways that we can and should and we should desire to serve throughout the week, and these are opportunities for us to serve. And so that's what I'm doing when I give announcements. I'm trying to promote the work and service and ministry um, to our great God throughout the week. I want to mention a couple things that are going on with that, <laughs> with that little devotional. Now what am I about to lay on you, right? Um, you know, just want to tell you some different things that are going on, really. Uh, we have a WANA ministry that is up and running and going well and strong, but Jamie has mentioned that there are a few spots that are still um, needing to be filled by some men. And I would encourage you, if you men are looking for a way that you can disciple children in the Word, and you might say, I don't know so much of the Word of God, well, children by and large, no less than you do. So it's a good opportunity for you to jump in and serve and, and be a part of that opportunity and ministry. Coming up next Sunday evening, we have a fellowship together that's called a Hymn Sing and Pie Social. It's in the middle of your bulletin. And uh, I want to encourage you to be a part of this thing. It came out of uh, just many of you in the church wanting to get together and sing some of the old hymns and just have a good old time together. Um, just getting to know each other and, and serving each other in relationship in that way. And Mike Taylor, our worship leader, uh, just stepped up and said, hey, I want to lead that time. So I think he has organized that evening and, and is uh, going to lead the hymns and all of that. So be sure to make that a part of your priorities for this, uh, this weekend coming. On Thursday, uh, this opportunity that I mentioned last week is still on for us, and it is that Dr. Wayne Grudem is going to be here during lunch. It's 11 to 1 uh, o'clock. It's $10 to sit down and eat. But I would say, look, if you even if you don't sign up, show up anyway. I've kind of asked permission to give that kind of announcement. I want you to be there. Uh, you could probably pay $10 when you come. You can sign up through uh, Alaska Family Council. The details are in the bulletin to do that. Or you could see Ron Witt or call the office this week to make sure you're signed up. But we want people to come. I want a crowd of people to come and honor this man, someone that maybe you're not familiar with yet, but he has written widely and is uh, an internationally known theologian of our day and will probably go down as kind of the J.I. Packer of our generation. So he'll be read long after he's gone. This book that you see on the screen, Politics According to the Bible, it's 600 pages long. It's a tome. It's exhaustive. It's exhausting even to think about. <laughs> I, uh, I got the book, and I was going to have some of it read before he came. And uh, so far, I've got the introduction done. It's just hot off the presses. But anyway, I'm not going to have it read before then, obviously. But uh, he's coming. Would really encourage you to be a part of either the lunch or at Abbott Loop later on um, that same evening, the 30th, which is this Thursday. Uh, in regards to the worship center renovations, I want to point this little box out to you on this part of our bulletin. 
Uh, as you can see, we've got some paneling that's going up, and we actually have the uh, rock wall um, stones that are that are here already. That are eventually going to be going up the sides. I want you to continue to pray about that process. See if you want to join in and serve and and use some of your artistic talent or lack thereof. Just show up and fake it. Um, we want you to to be a part of painting and and helping us in any way possible. It keeps the cost down as we're just trying to. Um, refurbish our our worship center and it's been 14 years since we've touched the place so we're trying to be involved in that way and I wanted to just let you know something as well the sound system that we're praying about purchasing as part of the phase two that really came kind of on a grassroots level from within the heart of the congregation there were several people who came to the elders as kind of a, a group that had been praying about an upgrade there. And so the elders, we've been trying to respond and create a plan for that to get done in time according to the will of God and, and the interest uh, according to the body. So continue to pray about whether or not we will uh, you know, have this sooner than later and what you might do to participate in giving towards uh, the sound system or the, the lighting as well. But just want to put that before you and try to keep, keep uh, interest going and keep us apprised of all the details. All of the, the details are lined out over on the information table and in the office as well in a document. Well, as part of our worship, I want us to stand now and shake each other, other's hands and say hi and ask each other how, they're, how you're doing. I think that would be appropriate. All right, let's uh, return now to our seats and grab your Bible. This is just a prelude to the fellowship we can have at the end of the hour. Someone asked me, maybe we should just encourage everyone at the end of the service to shake hands and, and greet and meet at the end. I think it's good to do it now as a prelude for what we need to be doing before, during, and after, which is uh, relating to each other in the Lord. It's so important that we serve each other as a community in this way. Let's pray as we, uh, as we begin to focus on Matthew 7. Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, in your word, I pray, God, that you would prick our consciences with the truth. Lord, we bow in humility before your throne. This is a passage on praying and asking and seeking and knocking so that the doors of heaven will be open to us. God, help us to understand this passage and to grow therein, especially as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm guessing that this passage that I'm about to read has been comforting to many of you, and at points, perhaps it's been even confusing to some of you. How does a passage like this apply? Follow as I read Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 7, Ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you, if then, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's a passage of comfort. Because within this passage, Jesus gives a very, very bold promise. And the bold promise is that if we ask, if we seek, if we knock, our Father is going to give us the good things that we're asking him for. You say, man, that that is a great promise to cling to. But at the same time, if I were to survey you and get to the most honest point in your heart... (laughs) I think I would find that for some of you, maybe for many of you, and myself included, perhaps you've been confused by this promise. Maybe it's been a source of comfort and a source of confusion at the same time. Maybe you've asked yourself, when does this promise actually work? When does this promise come online for me? Maybe you've asked for things that you just don't believe the Lord has ever responded to you about. Do you ever ask yourself, why didn't my prayer take? Why didn't it happen for me? Did I pray hard enough? Do I need to pray harder for something to happen for me? For God to bless me in this way? Maybe I need to ramp up the intensity or the length of my praying? When does this apply? Is this a proverb? Maybe you just have read this proverbially, like Jesus is setting up some ideal where we pray and we seek his will, and sometimes he blesses specifically by, by answering our prayers, and sometimes he does not. I mean, maybe you look at it that way. Maybe it's just the best case scenario version is when God actually specifically gives you what you're asking for. Maybe you've been tempted to be discouraged. And think, man, God doesn't care about this prayer request or this need in my life at all. And so why ask? Or maybe you've been confused to misrepresent God with a passage like this and believe that he is some great genie in the sky and you're rubbing your lamp as Aladdin and God will give you your three wishes. Well, many people struggle to reconcile what this means in their life. And yet it's a very, very beautiful promise. And to understand what it is that Jesus is telling us to ask for is to really understand how God can make good on this promise and how he blesses us. But within the church, as it is with a lot of things that are sometimes confusing and hard to understand at first blush, there is actually some teaching that I think is very wrong where people misapply this kind of promise for material blessings. Have you ever heard of the prosperity gospel where many leaders in the evangelical church and those who are sort of splashed across our TV say... If you just ask with enough faith, God will give you what you're asking for. There's a new movement. It's a couple decades old, but it's got some growing momentum, and it's called the Word of Faith 
movement. You've probably heard of some of the key players, key leaders in that. Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Benny Hinn. You ever heard of these people? Creflo Dollar, um, T.D. Jakes. What they're promoting based on a verse like this one or these verses is something like this. If someone just will believe the word of God and confess it, then the believer shall receive what they confess. It's called the name it and claim it movement. A lot of people base this on verses like Isaiah 53 where they pull it out of context The reference there is by his stripes or by Jesus's wounds, we are healed. And instead of applying that spiritually, they'll apply it physically and they'll say, look, it's a present tense verb here. You are healed. And so by Jesus's stripes, you can claim physical healing today and now. It could be very confusing. And they will even condemn people who stay sick. And they'll say that you are under Satan's power or dominion if you are not healthy. Satan is robbing believers of their divine right for health. And sadly, they'll promise prosperity if you have enough faith, prosperity and good health, good marriages, good relationships. All this is to be expected for the genuine faith-filled believer. The, The apostles and Jesus, of course, were rich and wealthy. They were those who could be self-supported for three years. They just wandered around, so they must have had a lot of money. They might have not read about the fact that Jesus had no place to lay his head and no home to go to. The apostles and Jesus, they must have hobnobbed with the upper echelons of wealthy people, right? Because they were good friends with them? No. Typically, when they hobnobbed with the wealthy people or the upper echelon, it was because they were being tried in court, right? They'll even judge whether you're positive enough, and if you're negative, that will give a negative outcome to your life. Well, here's the question. What harm actually comes from this kind of movement? Don't we want people to be more positive? Don't we want people to be believing that their life can turn out well? I mean, there are all kinds of offshoots of the prosperity gospel, right? I won't even name the list of popular names that are out there that might not be as strongly or overtly promoting this, but do it in subtle ways on public television all the time. What's the harm with this? Well, at the core of this thinking and doctrine is what's called dominionist theology, And it's the idea that you are ruling, that you're in command, that you look at a verse like this, verse 7, ask and it'll be given, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be open. And you have command, you have a personal authority that they say you have as a Christian, if you have enough faith, that can make things happen for you. Sound familiar? It's actually God-like. And they promote this God-like understanding where you are a lowercase g God as a Christian. They build that off of how Adam, the first Adam, had dominion over creation, was naming all of the animals, etc. And they see him as a kind of an early superhero. And they say that you as a Christian have that same kind of power now in Christ and authority. You're in God's sort of class. It's called the little God controversy, if you look it up online. And People like Kenneth Copeland have said things in sermons over the years like, you don't have a God in you, you are one. I mean, he has said that in his sermon called Force of Love. 
He bases this on Psalm 82, verse 6. And Jesus' sort of words and commentary about that in John chapter 10. If you turn over to Psalm 82, let's just look at that real quickly. Psalm 82. This is a passage that has been ripped out of context to base this theology. Look at verse 6. It says, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, what the psalmist is doing here is quoting God as saying a judgment on judges that were completely aloof to people who were in need. It was a condemnation on judges. And in verse 1 of Psalm 82, God calls the judges Elohim or God's. And what he means is, is that God has vested in, in them, in their position and office, the authority to adjudicate matters and to help people who are poor and in need. And then as you read the psalm, it says that they were not judging justly. They were judging unjustly. They were showing verse 2 partiality to the wicked. They weren't helping or giving justice to the weak or the fatherless. They weren't rescuing people. They weren't helping people. And so... Verse 6 says, I said you are gods. I said that you are these leaders, sons of the Most High, all of you. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is really a condemnation. It's It's a veiled form of sarcasm saying, look, you were propped up in this way. And you didn't use your power to help people. And so you're going to fall like dead men. You're just a man. So instead of propping someone up, it's really laying someone low. And Jesus picks up on this in John chapter 10. Turn over to John 10. In John 10, Jesus was being confronted by the Jews, probably the religious leaders at the time. And verse 34, the Jews were ready to stone him. Verse 31 says they were picking up stones because Jesus was making himself out to be God, which... He was and is. They were saying, you're blaspheming. And Jesus answered them in verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? What's Jesus doing? He's picking up on the sarcasm of Psalm 82 and saying, look, if you were willing to accept that those judges, those Jewish judges were called gods, lowercase gods as as judges that were blowing it and sinning, if you were willing to, to call them gods, then why are you having a problem with me now, one who has been sent by the Father, who's been consecrated for service? Why are you having a problem with me calling myself the Son of God? That's the point. And this movement, this Word of Faith movement, is lifting these verses out of context to build up man's ego and completely miss the point of Jesus's words here in Matthew 7 and really the miss the point of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, what, where are we supposed to seek prosperity? In Christ and in heaven, right? 
We're not seeking riches here on earth. This is not what we're living for. If you look at the Beatitudes, we're called to be meek. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You, you just, I just can't see those prosperity gospel leaders saying you need to be poor in spirit. You need to be persecuted. You need to suffer for righteousness sake right? That's the message of Jesus, and they flipped it on its head. Creflo Dollar, I picked up a quote from a video clip where Creflo Dollar was pointing to the creation account in Genesis, and he was talking about how horses, when, you know, they gave birth, they gave birth to what, you know, horses or animals after their own kind. And he kind of gets the crowd responding to him. And then he brings it to the Godhead and he says, so if the Godhead says, let us make man in our image and everything else produces after its own kind, then they produce what? And the group says, gods. And Creflo Dollar says, gods, that's right, little g gods. And then he says this, you're not human. The only human part of you is the flesh that you're wearing. It's dangerous. This is a dangerous and unbiblical teaching. I know that many people don't follow this teaching, but this teaching is still rampant throughout our culture, and it's out there. And there's a lesser level version of following this when you look at a verse like verse 7, And claim it for yourself as if you can manipulate God to do something if you pray it in the right formula or the right way, right? You've heard of the prayer of Jabez. If you'll just pray it enough over and over in the precise way, then something will happen for you. It's praying as if it's a formula. It's praying pragmatically. And that's not what we are called to do at all. Let me think about the word of faith is saying live for prosperity. Jesus is saying, don't expect prosperity until heaven, and that suffering is good for us. This is what we find in verses 7 through 11. This passage, let me just say this, if you understand this in the right way, if you understand the point of what Jesus is promising, it will transform your prayer life. A passage like this, rightly understood and applied, will rejuvenate you and will draw you to God in a greater and fresher way. So I'm hoping to show you it in its full clarity. First of all, there's two reasons why Jesus can make this bold promise. And the promise is is that God will give to you exactly what you're asking him for. This isn't a sham promise. This is straightforward promise-keeping that God promises you. I'm not a good promise keeper, but God is a good promise keeper. We can stake everything on his character. All right, here's the first reason why he can make this bold promise. It's that we're praying for what God has already promised to give us. He's going to give us already what we're praying for. Look at verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The picture here is of the believer who is asking ongoingly, seeking ongoingly, and knocking ongoingly with, with increasing intensity. 
Okay? You're, you're asking and then you're seeking and you're knocking. You're growing in your anticipation for God to bless you in this way. And actually, the, the, the verb tense, it's an imperative that we would do it, but it's not a duty command. It's more the idea of something that we would naturally do as believers. We'll ask, we'll seek, and we'll knock. It's just what happens because we've been transformed. This is the byproduct or overflow of a changed heart. We're askers, we're seekers, and we're knockers. And we're asking and seeking and knocking at our Heavenly Father's door. It's not pragmatism. This isn't about technique. This isn't about function. This isn't a magic formula to to create, you know, blessing in our lives. This is Jesus unlocking and, and opening up the hearers to say, yeah, that's who I am. I'm that kind of person. He's tapping into people's desires and intuitions. It's increasing intensity. When God saved us, we became persistent seeking God's blessing. You know, I find no greater illustration of someone or someones in my household who ask and seek and knock than my kids. Just for some reason, the twins came to mind. Especially around 2 a.m. You know, it's, it's that sort of moment where you're half in and half out. You're ready to shift back into REM. You really want, you know, to go back down in your sleep. And all of a sudden you hear, Dad! You know, why are they asking for Dad? You know, Mom, whatever, you know. And at that point, you, you begin to try to wrestle with God. And my prayer life increases because I, I go deep down before the throne of God in that moment and say, Lord, please grant my household sleep. Please, please knock that twin back out. You know, if you're going to do anything, please do that, you know. And there's no promise that God's going to answer that prayer. In fact, oftentimes he, he says no. And uh, one of my children or both are pitter-patting down the hallway. And so they've, they've asked for me, and now they're seeking to find me, right? And then if my door is shut, they begin to what? Knock on the door. It's an increasing intensity. And what they know is the same thing that I know, and that is that I love them even though they're tempting me to sin at that moment, right? I mean, I'm having to summon my inner Christian at that point, right? I'm having to summon my inner parent to to find grace for them. But they also know that I love them and that I'm not going to probably throw them out into the cold, you know? Things are probably going to go well no matter how intensely they're asking me to bless them. So, that's what it's, that's what it's, implying here with asking and seeking and knocking is that there is a relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's what we naturally do just like our kids would. Our kids beg for all kinds of things, don't they? And oftentimes it's good to say no and to use judgment and not give in at every turn. But if you're a loving parent, when they beg you at certain points, you're going to cave because you just love them. And that's the picture here. It's the idea that, that we're begging God, but we're begging within the context of a caring God that loves us and has our best interests at heart. You know, someone who knocks on my proverbial door often like yours is a telemarketer. And I just don't have the same grace for the telemarketer that I do my kids. I don't. They ask. They seek. You know, they're knocking all the time. The old unknown name, unknown number moment, right? And because I don't love that person, you know, I don't love them like I love my child. I'm just all business, you know, thank you, no thank you. 
time to go. I mean, somebody called me the other day, and they were calling for the Fraternal Order of Police. And I used to work for the Fraternal Order of Police as a telemarketer during college. So I just, I just, you know, kind of skirted the whole issue. I just said, hey, how you doing? Yeah. You know, I, I used to work for what you're doing right now, and I sat in the cubicle like you are. How you doing? How's it going today? You know, and it just kind of like, you know, let the tension out of the room, and, and we just moved on at that point. And the phone call was quick, and... Um, Anyway, they saw it and they did not find it at that point. All right, anyway, Luke chapter 11 is a parallel passage where Jesus is making the same point with his own story, another story to illustrate what it looks like to, to ask and seek and knock in the context of a relationship. In verse 5 in Luke 11, he's talking about a friend that comes by the house at midnight and he's seeking bread because he wants to um, provide bread for people that are friends that are coming by the next morning and he found that he has none and so he needs some. So he goes to his friend knocking on the door at midnight. The friend is sitting there in bed and he's got his family all in the bed with him because back then you had the family bed. It's not such an ancient phenomenon for the Kratz household, but most people don't live with all their kids piled over them. But this guy was then and was saying, look, you know, my kids are asleep. They're in bed with me. If I get up, I'm going to wake them up. So I'm not getting up. But verse 7 says, uh, or verse 8 says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or persistence here, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Ask, seek, and knock. Now the point is to be persistent in prayer. The point is to keep knocking, keep asking. But the context here fills in the loving relationship again. I mean, this is your your sort of friend that's your best friend that you can bother, and there's so much friendship equity there built in that you can wake them up and they're still going to love you later on anyway. And so that's sort of the context back to Matthew 7 that we find ourselves. These are children of God who aren't afraid to go persistently to their Heavenly Father and say, bless me. It's the old saint who said, I will not let you go until you bless me, Lord. You know, it's that kind of heart. But the key again to seeing this promise fulfilled in your life is to understand the conditions that are set here for how you are supposed to be blessed. What do I mean by that? What I mean is God isn't promising to give us a new car here or the new job that we think we deserve or want. He's not talking about physical blessings in the main here. What Jesus is talking about here is he's promising that he will give to you when you pray for it the very thing that he already is giving you, and that is spiritual growth. He's promising to bless you with a life that can actually live out Matthew 5 through 7, because that's the context here. And that's the key for praying in a way that we know confidently that the Lord is going to bless Look at the immediate context. Last week we talked about verses 1 through 6 and how we are not supposed to judge people. But at the same time, we're supposed to use shrewd judgment with people. And so how do we do that? How do we not condemn people? How do we get the log or the beam out of our own eye first and help people with their sin? And how do we not get duped by people who are rejecting the gospel? How do we figure that stuff out? Well, the next verse out of that whole discussion is verse 7. Ask, seek, 
and knock. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not leaving you on your own. You've got a heavenly father that will fill your heart with wisdom to navigate through very difficult relationships. Jesus wants us to know that God will bless us in this way. He will help us grow spiritually. Verse 12, it's the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for that, for this is the law and the prophets. How do we live that life? How do we live selflessly before other people? We pray for help to live selflessly for other people. And if we pray for this kind of help, God is promising as your heavenly father to give you the strength and the wisdom and the power to do these things. That's what this is. That's what it's all about. That's the immediate context. The broader context um, is the whole sermon on the mount. And maybe specifically in Matthew 6 where Jesus told his disciples how to pray. Remember the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. We're praying for the the name of God to be seen as holy. We're praying for the kingdom of God to come. We want people to be saved. And God has promised he'll save people. We want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that's going to take place in the future. His will will ultimately be perfected in the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. Give us daily bread. He makes good on those promises. Forgive us our sins and help us forgive other people. Help me not to be led into temptation. All of those prayer requests are part of what Jesus is saying we should always be asking for and seeking God for. And knocking on the door for help on. That's what he's talking about here. He tells us what to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. And now he's showing us how we should pray for these things. Because he's going to make good on them when we do. James 1 does the same thing. Have you ever had anyone reference James 1 verse 5? The promise where James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Have you ever come across that promise or seen someone say, Look, I need wisdom. I need to know which direction to go in life. I need to go either left or right. I need to go to this school or that. I need to marry this person or that. God, tell me the will of God. Okay, here it is. Verse 5. Tell me the will of God. It's going to happen. It's promised. And really, you have to understand that verse 5 is a promise within a context. The first couple verses are talking about trials and tribulations and how we're supposed to count suffering as something that's joyful to us because God is producing endurance in our lives. How we are to be steadfast and how God is perfecting us from the inside out. And then after he talks about that, then he gives the promise. If you're lacking wisdom for how to endure through these kinds of trials, then seek God for this wisdom. And you know what? God will grant you the faith and the endurance and the wisdom to suffer well. That's what he's talking about. He's not specifically saying that he's going to tell you precisely which direction to go in life at every turn. He is promising to give you wisdom no matter which direction you take. To give you wisdom to endure through difficult times. Verse 6 says, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea. In other words, God will bless us as we ask him for wisdom 
and he'll give us the endurance to make it through. John MacArthur, I think, said it best regarding this principle that I'm trying to to preach through. He said, in his word, God gives enough truth for us to be responsible, but enough mystery for us to be dependent. thought that was good. Do you ever find it difficult to pray for certain physical outcomes in other people's lives? Or even to pray for yourself for certain circumstances to happen? Because we don't know what God's will is going to be. We don't know if someone is going to get well or not. We don't know if someone is going to be healed on this side of eternity or not. Now, when the pressure's on, we should pray for physical outcomes and we should pray for physical healing. But isn't it sometimes difficult to do that because we don't know how God is going to bless? Mike Weber and I, Pastor Mike Weber, who just prayed for the offertory, went on a hospital visit this week and we saw a brother in Christ from our church who's probably dying of cancer and he's got cancer all through his body and perhaps, you know, a few weeks to live. And by the way, if I'm ever in that situation, I want Pastor Mike Weber to come to my bedside because he's so gifted. He's such an encouragement and was quoting a psalm off the top of his head as we prayed. And it just gave us a great opportunity to pray well for this dear brother. We were trying to provide comfort, but he was making it easy for us because he wasn't bitter. He had a, a, a bright countenance and he has a hope that soon he's going to see Jesus face to face. And so all of a sudden our hearts were wide open and swelling with joy even through the grief of the moment as we prayed for him and prayed with him. But he made it easy for us because primarily we were praying for spiritual things to happen in his heart. And that's what Jesus is promising us when we pray for these things. Spiritual growth. Christ-likeness. I struggle sometimes to pray. And I think the reason I struggle to pray is, first of all, I forget how much my father really loves me and knows what's going on in my heart. I forget who I'm praying to. And then secondly, I forget to pray for spiritual things primarily. To pray for heart transformation. To pray that I will endure well through whatever I'm undergoing. Pray for Christ-likeness. To pray for a beatitude attitude. That's when I get going more fluidly in my prayer life. That's when I can keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because I want to be blessed because God wants to bless me in that way. And he does it. So, all right, the first reason that he can make this kind of promise is we're praying for what God has already promised us. And secondly, the second reason he can make good on this promise is our father is completely unselfish in his love for us. No matter how unselfish we are towards our children, our Father is infinitely more unselfish towards us. He has no capacity to be selfish, sinfully selfish. He can't do it because he's sinless. He's perfect. And so because he's perfect, he can love you perfectly. He can. He's not capricious or whimsical. I was reading about how In the Greco-Roman culture, they created the pantheon of gods and how really certain men created versions of their own egos. And that's 
how they came up with these gods. They were gods that were really just like their creators. They were capricious. They were whimsical. And our God isn't like that. There was one story about Zeus and how Zeus had pulled a fast one on this gal who was a goddess, goddess named Aurora. And Aurora was the goddess of the dawn, and she fell in love with a mortal man named Tithonus. And she asked Zeus, hey, can you make Tithonus live forever for me? And so Zeus granted her the request, but doomed Tithonus to an eternity of perpetual aging. What a bummer, right? Bummer for Aurora, but that's, that's a capricious God. That's, that's a God that's, that's like us, that's, you know, got, that's up to something that would pull dirty tricks or fast ones. And our God isn't like that. We don't serve a father who wants to pull a fast one on us. He's concerned for all of our needs. According to his riches and glory, he loves you. And so that's why we pray to him, because of his perfect, unselfish love. Do you pray to God like that? Do you have the right view of God? That's so important for you to have a strong prayer life. That that will so control what you pray for. Because either we're in control of our lives, like the Word of Faith movement, where where it's it's up to us, it's up to our positivity, it's up to us claiming it or, or praying the prayer the right way, or instead, we are falling upon the mercy of a loving God who loves us, who allows for things to happen in our lives that are severe and difficult and yet blesses us in the midst of it and gives us a heart like this sermon describes, one that is meek and mild and receptive and needy and humble and blessed and filled with joy. That's what Jesus wants to do in our lives and that's what God promises to do for us when we ask when we seek and when we knock. He don't want to trick us. Look, look at how Jesus defends the Father's character in verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? All right, here's the scene. Sort of in modern Alaskan terms, you're sitting by the campfire, right? You've just eaten your hot dogs, and now you're, you're cooking up and grilling some burgers, okay? And you're sitting there with your kids, and your kid says, hey, Dad, you know, I've got a a bun here, and can I have my hamburger now? And you kind of flip the burger on. It would be unthinkable for this scenario to play out in this way, but all of a sudden you've got this sort of majorly evil dad who, instead of putting a soft piece of bread on top of that bun, he finds a, a rock that looks like the top part of the bun and sticks it on there instead and watches his child bite into it and break his teeth. Jesus, Jesus is saying, that's ludicrous. That would never happen. If the son asks for bread, he's not going to give him a stone instead. Then verse 10. If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? You know, serpents or snakes were ceremonially unclean for the Jews. And perhaps this is making the point that a father not only cares for his son's physical needs, but he also cares to keep his children blameless spiritually. Kind of like how fathers and mothers protect their kids within relationships that they might be forming and you're monitoring, you know, friendships that are happening between your kids and other kids and you're monitoring what your kids listen to or watch on TV. You care about what your child is learning spiritually because you care for that child. 
Maybe back then this would look like something look something like this, where the, the boy is asking for a piece of broiled fish, and instead the father has taken some snake meat and, and balled it up to look like broiled fish, but is just giving him that ceremonially unclean animal anyway. I mean, that would be unthinkable because the father cares for the child's heart. Probably more than that, this is talking about the idea that the father cares for the child's personal safety, right? He's asking for a fish, and the father wouldn't turn around and say, Aha! Here's a poisonous snake instead! It just wouldn't happen. I mean, in most households, it wouldn't happen. (laughs) It just wouldn't. And especially in Alaska, there are no snakes here, right? Which is a real praise to me, right? There's, There's great rejoicing. Isn't it great just to be able to go in the woods, just on a side note, and not think about what's under the log? I mean, you know, that's a real blessing for me all around. In Luke 11... Jesus also builds in the illustration of if your son asked you for an egg, he asked you for an egg, verse 12, will he give you a scorpion? He's not going to give you a balled up scorpion that looks like an egg. No, he's concerned for the child's personal safety. You ever watch your kid almost, you know, fall down or when they just about are ready to scrape their knee or get hurt or something happened. You ever feel it in your gut right before it happens? You're like, oh, it just makes you twinge inside, right? It's because your child is an extension of you. It's as if you're there. You're feeling the pains that they're going through. They're your own flesh. And what Jesus is arguing for here in verse 11 is kind of an example of the lesser to the greater In other words, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What's he saying? He's saying you intuitively, as a parent, want to protect your child, you want to feed your child, you don't want to trick your child, you care for your child, you don't want your child to be spiritually harmed, you just love your kid. And if you who are evil, even as a believer, you're evil still. Even if you're having to work through your own selfishness, you intuitively care for your children. So why would you ever doubt that your father doesn't want to give you good things? He does. Remember, Jesus, he's talking to a wide crowd here on the, on the side of the hill. You've got disciples. You've got apostles. You've got Pharisees there. You've probably got some Sadducees and scribes. You've got an array of different kinds of people out there. Jesus is indirectly confronting the Pharisees. But at this point, he is just directing his gaze right at people who are genuine believers. And he's saying, look, even you, knowing how evil you are in your hearts, you love your kids. You provide for them. So don't doubt God, who is pure of heart, and will unselfishly love you. Don't doubt that he will make good on his promise because he always will. He always will. He will infinitely bless you more than you could ever bless your kids. He gives you good things. What are the good things in verse 11? I think spiritual things. I mean, sure, you can, you can add in what he talked about in Matthew 6, how he provides food and clothing and shelter and all of those things. I'm sure that God makes good on those promises, but I think specifically here he's talking more about how God will feed our hearts and he promises to do so, right? Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in us 
will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for God to do that work in our hearts, we're just praying the promise that he's already promised to do in the first place. And he's going to do it perfectly well because he is a perfect God. You know, thinking this way, it makes me want to pray. Is that how it is for you? Don't you want to pray for spiritual things to happen in your life and in the lives of others? God will make good on his promises. All right, let's apply this a little bit. Some wrong ways to pray. Wrong ways to pray. And some of these are said in an extreme fashion, so, you know, just email me about them later. Okay, number one, I pray out of a sense of duty because I am a Christian. I mean, that's not entirely wrong to to pray out of a sense of duty as a good soldier of Christ. I understand that, but we don't want to pray out of some kind of legalism. That's, that's my point. We don't want to pray out of guilt, out of fear. We want to pray out of the overflow of the fact that God changed your life through the gospel. You want to knock legalism down here. Number two, I pray to stay in good graces with God. We are in good grace, right? There's no condemnation that's going to come to us. We are his child forever. It's a signed, sealed, and delivered statement. We are sealed in Christ. And so praying doesn't keep us in good with God. It unlocks what God is already doing in us and through us. And I think God blesses us even more when we pray for the right things. Number three. I pray so that terrible things will not happen to me or my family. Now, let me just edit this. Uh, Am I saying that we shouldn't pray for the safety of our kids or ourselves? No, we can do that. Obviously, that's fine. But we, we don't need to pray out of fear at the expense of God's sovereign design for our lives. God is sovereign, meaning he rules all of the details. And I think it's important to pray that our kids are safe, but it's more important that we pray that our kids' hearts are transformed, right? We'd, we'd much rather our kids spend eternity in heaven than be safe here on earth. So we need to put the accent mark in the right place. Number four, I pray to manipulate my difficult circumstances into good circumstances. Are we in control? Are we manipulating anything when we pray? No, we're not. We're not little gods. God is God, and we are not. And so we're not manipulating anything. We're just praying that God's will will be done. Number five, I pray because God owes me a better life. Say, I wouldn't do that. Well, search your heart, you know? It's an easy temptation to pray out of dissatisfaction for the life that he's given us. And instead, we should rejoice and build upon that as we pray. All right, right reasons to pray. Number one, I pray because God rebuilt me to pray. We maybe prayed before we were saved, and we had to pray the sinner's prayer of repentance to be saved. But God transformed our hearts so that we would pray. And Jesus is making good on his promise where he prayed that in the garden in John 17, that we would be set apart or sanctified in truth, that we would be protected. He's making good on that. Number two, I pray because God has made me aware of my sin. Say, I got nothing to pray about. Well, just start to list off your sin issues to God and repent for a while. God, you are holy and I am the opposite. I've done this. I've done that. My motive is this. My heart is doing that. God, forgive me. 
and to take some time and cleanse the cup. That's asking and seeking and knocking, and God will answer that prayer. He's promised to do so, 1 John 1, 9. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Letter A, I'm painfully aware of my inadequacies. I'm acutely aware of my need for his intervention. Number three, I pray because I am overwhelmed by my promise-keeping God. God's the promise keeper. We need to be overwhelmed by that. We need to remember who he is. He's our father forever. He unselfishly and perfectly loves us. He cares for us. He is generous to us. And he promises to provide for us. And and here it is. He promises to grow you. I think that's the key to this whole section. Pray for spiritual growth. Pray for it for yourself. Pray for it for other people. If you read the prayers of Paul when he launched the epistle of Ephesians or Colossians. You say, I can't figure out what he's praying about all the time for the church. He's praying about these things, that people would grow in grace and that they would grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. How practical is that? Very practical. If you're growing in grace, that's going to have a trickle-down effect in all of what you do and all of what you say and all of who you are, and you'll impact the kingdom for eternity and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, and I pray, God, that you would continue to do your work and will in our lives, and I pray, God, that you would help each of us to grow in grace, and let us to be faithful to ask and seek and knock, not because we're manipulating anything or trying to drum up some sense of duty in our lives, but just because we want to. We want you And you've trained our minds to want you and love you. Let us turn our hearts toward you in total dependence upon you who is holy and our Father. We love you. And I thank you for this group. I thank you for our church. I pray that we would all have a testimony of prayer. And Lord, that our church would would be transformed from the inside out. For those who are here who do not yet know you, I pray that you would prompt them to believe and make today the day of salvation. Pray that they would speak with someone or myself about their need for Christ and be confirmed in the word that they are believing the only way, the narrow way for salvation in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our final dismissal. Just want to encourage you that we have spiritual resources here and people that stand up front and are mixed throughout our congregation. We, we want to pray with you with any spiritual needs that you have. We'll be up here in the front. We have a resource table as well. Go out and be salt and light in the world. Be plugged in and um, take some time afterwards today to greet each other and meet each other in the Lord and to pray with each other. Have a great day.